Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Elizabeth Dean was raising her two young girls in Alaska. She wasn't the best mother, as her oldest daughter Ashley would later recall on the Dr. Phil show. She would leave six-year-old Ashley to babysit her three-year-old sister Miranda, or she'd thank them to her sister's house while she went out to have fun. Her sister's husband sexually abused both Ashley and Miranda. He was charged and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Nine years later, when Miranda was 13, she turned to Satanism. She would later claim this was her first experience with murder. She was with the leader of the Satanic cult when he shot a man who owed him money. He then told Miranda to shoot him as well. When she hesitated, he put her hands on the gun and put his on top of hers, and together they pulled the trigger. Miranda stayed with the Satanic cult for three years, but when she got pregnant, she wanted out, and left for North Carolina and moved in with her aunt and uncle in the small town of Coates. Elliot Barber was a tall, thin man, 21 years old, and known to be quiet and intense. He lived with his parents in Coates and was from a religious family, played trombone in the high school marching band, and was now in college. He was the father of a young girl from his relationship with Amy Vanille. She told the Daily Item that he practiced Satanism, and he always talked about doing hard drugs, and in March 2013 overdosed on ecstasy, a drug known to trigger hallucinations. She said he took two tablets and lost his mind. He kept repeating himself for hours. He told her that he used to have voices in his head, and when he did ecstasy, they all went away. In Coates, Miranda met Elliot and Amy. Both women were pregnant and became friends. The threesome hung out, and both women gave birth in late 2011. But Amy and Elliot's relationship became strained, and they broke up. Miranda was a petite, dark-haired, attractive single mom, and to make ends meet posted ads on social media for companionship in exchange for money. Eventually, Miranda and Elliot became more than just friends. They shared their common interest in Satanism, and he knew about her companionship business, but he didn't mind. He didn't view it as cheating, because they were only meeting for conversation. On October 22, 2013, the two young birds made it official and became husband and wife. She was 18, he was 21. They made a pact that they would commit a murder together. The newlyweds decided to leave Coates and headed 450 miles north to Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, with plans to stay with a friend of Elliot's. Their plan for murder was always on their minds. Meanwhile, in nearby Sunbury, Pennsylvania, Troy LaFerra had been born there. After high school, he attended Penn State University, where he earned a degree in civil engineering and worked as a senior engineer. He met his wife, Colleen, online. She was 10 years younger than him, and she liked that he was older and mature. They married and settled into life back in his hometown. 
She loved that he was a generous man, a gentle giant at six feet and 275 pounds. Elliot's 22nd birthday was coming up, but they were short on cash to celebrate. It also coincided with their three-week wedding anniversary. So Miranda did what she'd always done and posted an ad on Craigslist, offering her companionship services. Then they made their plans to celebrate his birthday with a murder. Then dinner in Harrisburg afterwards. Troy responded to Miranda's ad on November 11th. They emailed, texted, and eventually spoke on the phone and arranged to meet that evening. The Daily Item reported that sometime after 8 p.m., Troy headed out for his meetup with Miranda. As he always did before he left the house, he told his wife that he loved her. Just after 9.30 p.m., he parked his Chevy S10 pickup truck near a restaurant at Susquehanna Valley Mall in nearby Hummel's Wharf. He and Miranda were communicating on their cell phones. She was on her way. Miranda and Elliot were finally going to carry out their dream of killing someone together, to murder someone, anyone. Miranda dressed in a black dress, black boots with a red jacket, and slid behind the steering wheel of a red Honda CRV. On the way to the mall, she was pulled over by the Zealand's Grove police. She'd forgot to turn on her car's headlights. She was issued an oral warning, and soon they were on their way. As planned, Elliot climbed into the back seat of the car and hid under a blanket. When she pulled up to Troy, he opened the passenger side door and climbed in. Miranda drove towards Sunbury. Troy mentioned he knew a place to go. His mother's house that he now owned and was renovating was on North 8th Street. Miranda and Troy chatted along the way. When they arrived at Troy's house, she pulled over and parked. Troy began to touch her body and put his hands around her neck. Miranda grabbed the knife she kept between the seats and stabbed him repeatedly 20 times. Then Elliot emerged from his hiding spot in the back seat and wrapped a cord around Troy's neck and began to strangle him. Troy fought back, but Elliot held the cord tight. CNN reported that Miranda drove away with Troy in the passenger seat. He was still alive. She could hear him choking and gasping for air. But soon, his breathing stopped. She needed a place to dump his body, but she didn't know her way around Sunbury. She drove a couple blocks until she found an alley. She got out of the car. Troy was leaning against the passenger side door. She opened it and watched Troy fall out. One of his feet was still in the car, so she lifted it out, then reached into his pants pocket and stole his wallet. The couple drove off, leaving Troy to die alone in a dark alley. He laid face down with blood draining out of his body. Troy was 42. Miranda drove to a local department store that was open late. Elliot purchased paper towels, carpet cleaner, garbage bags, and new seat covers. She was shocked how much blood was in her car. They mopped it up and threw the bloody towels and garbage bags in a dumpster somewhere in Sealands Grove. Later, Miranda told Newsweek that her and Elliot went to Harrisburg to celebrate his birthday as planned, and that after the murder, they were on this high, but the club was bad. The girls were just dirty. It was a total buzzkill. Colleen was used to Troy hanging out and talking with friends, so at 1 a.m. she wasn't concerned. 
but by 3 a.m. when he wasn't home, she knew something was wrong, so she went looking for him. She kept trying his cell phone. It went straight to voicemail. She told the Daily Adam that the next three hours were the longest three hours of her life, waiting to call someone that might know where he is. When morning came, she reported him missing to police. Sunbury resident Brittany Settler was making herself a cup of coffee that morning. She told CNN that when she opened the fridge to get some creamer out, she looked and was like, what is that? So she went outside, walked over to the garage behind her house, and saw a body. His face was purple, keys clutched in his hand. Police quickly responded. Beside the body lay a bloody black cable and a cell phone. No wallet, no ID. Police started questioning neighbors, but no one knew who he was, what had happened to him, or why he was dead in the alley. Miranda and Elliot returned to Sunbury that night to try and find Troy's body, but it was dark and they couldn't, so they went back the next morning. They spotted police and guessed they'd found Troy. A few hours later, Colleen saw a news report of a body found in Sunbury. She turned off her computer. She didn't want to know anymore. She then called her husband's cell phone again. This time, there was an answer. It was the Northumberland County officials. She said that's when she knew. Sunbury police were calling it the worst murder they'd seen in years. They descended on Troy's home on North 8th Street and left with evidence bags. Nine days after the murder, the Daily Adam reported that city police had formed a murder task force to hunt for clues and quoted police chief Steve Massio as characterizing them as a different social venue of society. Their investigation had discovered that Troy frequented gentlemen's clubs and used his social media to arrange meetups. They were searching his computer and cell phone and mining social media sites for evidence. The day after Troy's body was found, his Chevy pickup was located at the mall. Investigators obtained video surveillance from the city cameras and businesses showing the arrival of his truck the night before. Police obtained a search warrant for Troy's cell phone and it revealed that his last communication was with Miranda. On December 2nd, they contacted her to see if she'd meet with investigators, and she did. She voluntarily arrived at the Sealands Grove Police Station. She agreed to talk to police without an attorney. Police produced a photo of Troy and asked if she knew him. She denied knowing him. Investigators then told her Troy's cell phone records indicated she was the last person to have contact with him. Miranda then admitted she may have had contact with him through a Craigslist ad. She then claimed that after speaking with Troy on the phone, they'd made plans to meet at a mall, but the area was dark and she wasn't comfortable, so she didn't go to the meetup. Instead, she returned home to pick up her husband and go to Harrisburg for his birthday dinner. Meanwhile, Elliot had just finished working his shift, and when he walked outside, police were waiting for him. They asked him to accompany them to the police station, and when he arrived, he saw Miranda. Police showed him a photo of Troy, and they questioned the couple, then released them. The couple arrived home around 2 a.m. They discussed their options, and Elliot told Miranda that she may as well turn herself in because the police will be back, and she just wanted to get it over with. So he drove her back to the police station, 
She couldn't afford an attorney and asked for a public defender. But the problem was, she wasn't under arrest yet, so she wasn't entitled to one. Miranda told police that she wasn't leaving the police station and was willing to provide a statement. She claimed that yes, they emailed and tested back and forth, and yes, she did meet with Troy at the mall, and he had hopped into the passenger seat in her car. She drove them to Sunbury, and Troy told her where to park. Then Troy began to grope her and place his hands around her throat, so she grabbed a knife she kept for protection and stabbed him. She claimed that after a couple slashes, Troy didn't react, and she blacked out. She didn't remember stabbing him. Miranda told police she'd kept the knife around for a few days, then threw it in the Susquehanna River at Sealands Grove. Miranda left out the part of Elliot being in the car and strangling Troy. Was she trying to protect him, or did she want all the credit? The next day, Miranda was arraigned on charges of aggravated assault, possession of instruments of crime, simple assault, and criminal homicide. She was held in Northumberland County Prison without bail. Her husband requested an interview with the Daily Item. He stood outside their building and smoked a cigarette and defended his wife, saying he wanted people to know she is not a killer or a prostitute, but a paid companion who had delightful conversations with rich men for money, and that police were making it sound like she was a cold killer. But that's not her at all. She's just a great listener. The Snyder County children and youth swooped in and took custody of Miranda's daughter and put her into foster care, and eventually she went to live with a family member. On December 6th, the Charlotte Observer reported Elliot confessed to strangling Troy and purchasing the cleaning products after the murder. He was charged with simple assault, aggravated assault, possession of instruments of crime, and criminal homicide. Along with his confession, he also told police that he and Miranda had planned to kill before, but their plan hadn't worked out. It was just the luck of the draw that their plan worked with Troy. Sunbury police visited a home shared by Miranda and Elliot in a search for evidence. They walked away with several bags and boxes, including a serrated knife and clothes worn that night by the murderers. A former roommate told the Daily Item that one of the items removed was a satanic Bible. Elliot's former girlfriend, Amy, said, People will say he was a devil worshipper. That isn't true. What he believed in was Satanism. It isn't about being scary. It's about believing in yourself and not oppressing the instincts you were born with. A couple weeks later, Miranda and Elliot had additional charges added for felony robbery and criminal conspiracy to commit robbery for stealing Troy's wallet during the course of the murder. On the morning of December 20th, 49 days after Troy was murdered, Miranda appeared before a judge in a courtroom in the Northumberland County Courthouse. In the afternoon, it was Elliot's turn to be in court. Both pled not guilty. At their preliminary hearing, police testified about Miranda and Elliot's confessions. The autopsy report indicated knife wounds to Troy's face, neck, shoulders, and chest. The coroner testified that Troy died of multiple stab wounds with strangulation, possibly a contributing factor. Surveillance video from the department store showed Miranda outside the car in the parking lot, while Elliot emerged from the back of the car and went inside and purchased cleaning supplies. And remember when Miranda told police she'd thrown the knife in the river? Turns out she hadn't. Elliot told police it was hidden in the attic behind insulation. 
The media had dubbed the young couple the Craigslist Killers and Honeymoon Homicide. In late January 2014, the Northumberland County District Attorney announced they would be seeking the death penalty for both Miranda and Elliot. The DA also stated that he intended to try the couple together as they participated in the same offense. Meanwhile, a former Satanist who consulted with authorities pointed to possible clues in the murder that may be related to Satanism. The Daily Adam reported that Adele Neveling noted that the ad was uploaded to Craigslist at 1.11 a.m. on November 1st. Troy was murdered on November 11th, which was Elliot's 22nd birthday, which could be interpreted as four ones. Important Satanic dates are dictated in the Satanic calendar, but each Satanist's birthday is also an important day. Therefore, the ones are all related to the times and dates that led to Troy's death on Elliot's birthday. She also mentions that in numerology, the number one symbolizes strength, determination, is unwavering with specific goals in mind. The number one can turn dreams and ideas into reality. Adele also stated that the knife used in the murder would be called a ceremonial dagger and that the barbers would have kept the knife. While in prison, Elliot got a new tattoo near his right eye, a tear filled with black ink. Such a tattoo can symbolize that he killed someone. On Valentine's Day in 2014, Miranda gave a prison interview to the Daily Item. Using a jailhouse phone and a transparent partition between them, she had many revelations to share with the world. The first being that she had no regrets for Troy's murder and declared, and I quote, if I were to be released, I would do this again. And secondly, Miranda had considered sparing Troy's life until he said the wrong thing. She remembered everything, she said. It's like watching a movie. When they drove to Sunbury, she planned to let Troy get out of the car, but first she tested him. She told him she was only 16, and when he said that's okay, it angered her. So she stabbed him, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. Elliot was supposed to strangle him. The stabbing wasn't planned. She said if he'd said no to her after she said she was 16, she would have let him go. The third revelation was that she claimed to have committed many murders throughout Alaska, Texas, North Carolina, and California. When asked how many, she claimed to have stopped counting after 22. Police responded to Miranda's claims of being a mass murderer. However, her details were vague and never coincided with any missing or murdered persons in the state she listed. Miranda's father and mother told the media that their daughter was manipulative, a liar, and they didn't believe her. A fourth revelation is that the couple used a different signal for the murder than what was reported. Their signal was when she said, Did you see the stars tonight? But she claimed when she said it, Elliot didn't move. So a little later, she said it again. And still, Elliot didn't move. So she hit him in the leg and he finally popped up from the back and began strangling Troy. Then she started stabbing him. In April, Miranda tried to kill herself in prison. In an interview with Newsweek, she revealed she quietly unscrewed the bulb from the socket in her cell, smashed it on the ground and picked through the shards, searching for a piece sharp enough to slice open her wrists. She was dismayed that none of the pieces would do the job. Sitting on a hard plastic chair in a visitation room, the reporter noted that she is 19 but appears younger. 
has a warm smile and speaks in a quiet, calm voice, just above a whisper. She said she regrets that she'll never hold her husband or daughter again, and that she knew she would be put away. She just didn't think it would happen so quickly, and that she would have more time to say goodbye. But she had no regrets for Troy. She claims that she was tired of killing, and that's why she left Troy's cell phone at the murder scene, that she wanted to get caught. On September 18th, Miranda and Elliot were sentenced to life in prison. ABC7 Eyewitness News reported that they displayed no emotion as they sat with their lawyers in the courtroom, while some of the victim's relatives described the grief and pain they experienced. The judge told them that justice is being served with your permanent removal from our community and society. In August 2015, Elliot filed an appeal. Miranda was outraged and offered to testify against him. Three months later, he withdrew his motion for a new trial when he discovered it would include the possibility of the death penalty. In May 2018, Miranda filed a request with the court asking a judge to reconsider her life sentence claiming she could be rehabilitated. Four months later, the judge said there was no merit to her request, and it was denied. In the end, both Miranda and Elliot are where they deserve to be, in prison for life. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Lonnie Cocantas. In May 2006, he booked a cruise and specifically requested a room with the balcony, one with a straight drop to the ocean below. That night, Lonnie and his ex-wife Mickey enjoyed dinner and wine. Then, Mickey vanished. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.